Hello, and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies, and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Jeremy Shapiro. You're probably noticing that I'm not Mark Leonard. He is verifying that he is European by taking all of August off. And so I am a pale substitute for him, but we'll do our best. And this week, we're going to discuss the situation in Belarus and the implications of that for the region and for Europe. I'm very pleased in order to do that, to be able to welcome our usual all-star cast of ECFR people and outside help. This week, we have Andrew Wilson, who is a senior policy fellow at ECFR and also a professor at UCL. And he is the author of Belarus, The Last European Dictatorship, which he just informed me is going to have a new edition next year. We're also joined by ECFR's crack senior policy fellow, Kadri Leek, who's in Estonia. And finally, we're joined by Olga Drindova, who is the editor of Belarus Analysis, which is a University of Bremen newsletter on Belarus and a keen observer of the scene in Belarus. Thank you all so much uh, for joining. Olga, I'd like to begin with you and ask you for a, a sense of the situation on the ground in Belarus, and particularly if you could to give us some sense of what it is that the opposition is actually trying to achieve and what, if any, strategy they have for achieving it. So we've seen the last two weeks that um, actually two biggest protest actions, so to say, in the history of Belarus took place. So we've seen um, about over 200,000 people protesting in Minsk last Sunday and the Sunday before, and also quite a lot of people politically active in the regions, which is quite unprecedented in the Belarusian history, uh, such long-lasting uh, and such broad after-election protests. So I would say that uh, the protest moves in the society are still high. We also observe a very high wave of solidarity in the Belarusian society and self-organization, uh, where we know that protests do not have any political center. So people have learned quite fast to self-organize themselves via social media, but also this private horizontal context becoming very important. People are also getting used to using public space for their political messages, which is also quite new for Belarusians. And, uh, well, I mean, I, can, I, I cannot say that there are no repressions anymore. We still observe some targeted repressions against the most active people, but it is still not the way that we saw um, directly after the elections during these three days and nights. So people are kind of getting used to it. And uh, also maybe humor is a very important uh, solidarity tool. And uh, I think that it is quite an interesting observation how Belarus uh, actually react on what is happening in the, in the country with the political humor. And I think it helps them to take the situation not that serious as we saw. I mean, we saw the president with a gun and these things with a helicopter on Sunday and the impression that I have, well, these things, they didn't reach their aims. So things that I see now is that people just take it with humor. So they do not really see president as legitimate anymore. And they're trying, you know, to make jokes of it. So that's the, the impression that I have from, from the society. But of course, there are also quite a lot of problems in the whole protest mood. As already mentioned, there is no one political center there. So we have... Uh, we have a kind of symbolic figure who, who is Tihanovska and she's still sitting in Lithuania. She has never called for protests actually in Belarus and people do understand that she's a symbolic figure and she admits uh, it herself. At the same time, there are some attempts 
to create, to build a new um, coordination council. It has already been built with the aim of peaceful transfer of power. And th the first problem that they're already facing is that criminal investigation has been already initiated against this council. So we don't see any readiness uh, from the side of the state, so to say, for a dialogue with society, the state and the president himself. They do not see this council as a legitimate council. Today, even maybe you follow the news, even uh, Svetlana Alexievich, who is actually a, a Nobel Prize winner of literature, she's Belarusian, and she was actually also, I mean, she was not arrested, but she had to deal uh, with the whole criminal uh, investigation, and she was called, you know, to test against this council and so on. So it's quite unprecedented also that she, she's also part of this council. And it's just a sign for us that independent, how, how popular the people are who are actually part of this council. It's a clear sign for us that there is no chance for the state that the officials would see any potential figures for negotiations within this council. And it could be really become a problem because people, I mean, already shown, it can do on the streets, right? But people still need some political representation and we still do not have this political representation for their position. Yeah, Andy, that sort of brings us to the question that I wanted to get to you. It seems as if the opposition's strategy is to demand these negotiations, to demand sort of negotiated transfer of power, at least a compromise. How is the regime responding to that? And what, what is their strategy for, particularly Lukashenko's strategy, beyond um, performative flying of helicopter and carrying of guns that I guess people aren't taking very seriously to deal with these protests? Well, carrying a gun rather indicates that you're not particularly uh, prepared for dialogue. I guess um, the regime response has really unfolded in three phases. Firstly, um, during the election campaign itself, the late Belarusian political scientist uh, Vitaly Selitsky developed the concept of preemptive authoritarianism. In previous elections, Lukashenko has been very good at weeding out effective opposition and preventing mass protest. They didn't do that very well this time. Uh, they weren't preemptive at all, very reactive, and largely lost control of the process. Eventually, they were preemptive in the sense that they they kicked out a lot of the candidates. Uh, they fashioned the opposition. They arranged for the cheating, which is what they always do. So, what went wrong this time? Well, they did that at a much later stage than previously in previous elections. Plus, they allowed proxies to compete, both directly in the case of Tsikhanovskaya and indirectly the three women representing the three excluded candidates who sort of campaigned in their stead. So although uh, Tsikhanovsky, Babariko and Sepkala, <laughs> the three excluded candidates weren't in the race themselves, but by proxy they were. Then I guess you had an initial harsh but crude response to the protests after the election fraud, the three nights that uh, Olga was talking about. Something of a lull since then, but the third phase, I guess, with the arrival of this uh, FSB plane on the 19th of August, nobody knows what was discussed, but clearly strategy changed after that. And it's copying some kind of Russian tropes of counter-revolutionary technology. You've started to see fake demonstrations in support of the government, fake movements in support of the government, tougher policing. But most important of all, the, the threat of Russian security forces somehow being added to the Belarusian security forces. So. The regime, I guess, hopes that the opposition movement will lose momentum and dwindle. But if it doesn't, they are threatening to act and act tough. I suppose the most threatening part of the are the strikes, really, even more than the protests. How is the government dealing with that? 
Well, threatening, yes, because these are mainly strikes in big state enterprises. The Belarusian economy is still dominated by them, so it directly hurts the state and the state budget. But on the other hand, the state has been quite successful in isolating strike leaders, firing them, imprisoning them, and there are signs that the strike movement, at least, might be losing numerical momentum. Uh, Although there are kind of new strikes happening elsewhere, in the education sector, for example. So that seems to be where momentum is being lost a, a bit, although there are still hundreds of thousands of people on the streets. So Andy brought up the role of Russia, and it seems as if uh, on a certain level there's already been some assistance, at least in terms of providing the blueprint for how to deal with this kind of stuff. Also with, with the threat of Russian intervention or Russian assistance from, to the security forces. We always talk about how Russia doesn't really want to do these things, but somehow ends up doing them anyway. How is this being seen in Moscow, and how do you think the Russians will respond to what's happening? It's um, a little bit hard to say, being outside Moscow, but I've had a, made a few phone calls to Moscow, and based on what I hear, it seems to me that Russia hopes to manage the process. If you look at their signaling, they are endorsing constitutional reform and they are telling the outsiders to keep distance. They are saying no to Western mediation, but they endorse yeah, the, the constitutional process. I guess they have sent some help to the regime, but not too much. I don't think they, they want Lukashenko to survive and secure its power. They are quite happy to let him fry, fight for himself. They are making sure that opposition, or at least the unwelcome sort of opposition, uh, read pro-Western opposition, doesn't get too much power, doesn't overthrow the regime. And then they play it by the air. They could look for alternatives to Lukashenko, whom they could back, but they could also stick with him if he seems uh, able to prevail. Ultimately, if they have to, I guess they would also find a way to work with the opposition. But that's probably not what they would prefer, because these are not, shall I say, Moscow's type of people who are in the Coordination Council right now. So I think Moscow is quite secure at the moment. And yes, they are not planning to intervene in any too forceful way. But of course, any help they give to Lukashenko is not entirely unselfish either. In the course of it, they will be strengthening their own positions inside the country. That's quite clear. Typically, we hear that that Russia has two types of concerns with these types of situations, of which there's been many in the post-Soviet space in, in the last 20 years. And, you know, the first is, as you sort of referred to, is Western intervention, which I think we should probably talk about. But the second, which I wanted you to focus on more immediately, is the question of this, the sort of spread of color revolutions. The idea that if you allow this kind of thing to happen and in a place like Belarus, that it, that it will then spread to other places and maybe even to Russia. And of course, that doesn't seem like a crazy concern right now in Russia, given that there's been quite a spate of protests in the Far East and in other parts of Russia and even occasionally in Moscow. So is the Kremlin at all worried about that? Or is that just a sort of very 2015 kind of worry? In I think the chief worry is, is geopolitical. I mean, Belarus is geopolitically hugely important and they wouldn't want to risk Belarus aligning with the West in any format. 
concerning spread of color revolutions to Russia, I don't know. They may there can be some fears in the Kremlin because they can be quite paranoid. I remember how they reacted to protests by their own pensioners in 2005 against monetization of benefits. Many in Moscow thought that this was the start of color revolution in, in Russia, whereas at the time it clearly wasn't. Putin was still popular. So they can misread their own population and and that's why I guess they can be a little bit worried. But myself, I remain sceptical about such theories, domino effects of, of color revolutions. Moscow might fear it, some in the West might hope it, but I think Russian society is, is quite quite different. I mean, Russia is very top-down country, bottom-up revolutions have not brought much good to it. It's drastically different than its setup from Ukraine, for instance, that is a classical bottom-up country, even anarchic in, in some respects. So I just don't think that, that they can spread so easily, even though they inspire, of course, people, no question about that. But I don't think we should draw any too direct parallels. I think it's also important to understand that those who the decision makers who are sitting in Russia, they're of course also not watching, not only watching the, the Belarusian state television, so to say. I mean, this geopolitical factor, it just did not exist from the very beginning in the whole electoral campaign in Belarus. So we never heard anything anti-Russian from the most popular potential candidates. Uh, I say potential because they were not registered and a number of them are arrested now. And we also actually do not see any pro-European or or flags that the Europe, the flags of the European Union. So this geopolitical factor just uh, does not exist for, for the time being, for the moment. Now it's not in the protest moods, and it's, it was also not in these, you know, discussions among the, the potential candidates. So what is the Belarusian state is trying to do is literally to to bring in this geopolitical factor, so to say, in order to split the society and to convince people, to convince Belarusians and also those in Russia who make um, the decisions that these protest moves are geopolitical, they are anti-Russian, they are pro-European and so on. But I'm quite sure that those, you know, who are sitting there uh, in Russia, they also do understand that it's not the case. And it's actually also a very important social factor, so to say, the, the whole Belarusian society is, is, is a huge source for Russian soft power because Belarusians might be the most friendly nation in, towards Russia, so to say, and the anti-Russian moves are really not that widespread. So I would even not believe that in case Belarus has free and frank elections, that a clearly anti-Russian candidate would even win, would be able to win. So I think it's also very important, you know, for Russia to understand that Belarus is already very dependent on Russia economically. And there are quite a number of social uh, of soft power tools that Russia is already using in terms of language, Russian media, you know, the whole history, culture, uh, family links and so on. So it's quite, I mean, I, I think, yes, it would be dangerous of course also for Russian society to see that these revolutions from bottom-up revolutions can work but at the same time as soon as they are not anti-Russian there is still the possibility that you know that Russia will try to somehow accept it and somehow still try to influence the most popular potential candidate or presidency in the future in Belarus and they still have you know mechanisms and they have this possibility of influence uh, also for the future.
One uh, possible lesson for Russia is the dangers of crude fraud. I mean, ironically, Russia held the referendum on constitutional change earlier this year before the events in Belarus, where the amount of fraud was not that dissimilar to the level in Belarus. But that was in very different circumstances before these protests. So they may and probably should think quite hard about upcoming elections in Russia, the next election cycle for parliament and for president, and think about how to do things differently, but still rationally. (laughs) To go back to where I started, to think a bit more about preemptive authoritarianism, there might be some more inventive methods of kind of drawing the sting of popular protest, um, sort of managed opposition parties in the next Russian electoral cycle, if they pay attention to the lessons of uh, what happened in Belarus, that is. I think all of this sort of begs the question of what the West should do. Arguably, listening to Olga and Kadri, the West should probably not do anything. But that's probably not where they are. The, the EU has already posed some sanctions. They're having a meeting, I think, today or soon with the um, Deputy Secretary of State from the U.S. There are plans probably to call for an OSCE mission to Belarus and to issue possibly some sort of joint appeal for new elections. How would those things be seen in Belarus and in Russia? On the constitutional referendum, well, that's actually also not the new idea. I mean, this idea has uh, already been discussed in the Belarusian society. It was also pointed at quite a lot of times also by the president himself. So it started about two years ago. And I think the idea was really to uh, prepare uh, the Belarusian society, you know, for these constitutional changes. And there were a couple of ideas whether Belarus should become parliamentary or this mixture of parliamentary presidential republic. But but I do not believe that the president expected that he, you know, would have to do it right now after this election. So I think the ideal plan would, uh, you know, to stay in power another five years and then have enough time for the whole discussion and also for preparing a, a stable and peaceful power transfer. I think it was his idea. So we, we're hearing this idea once again from him because he really does not have, you know, um, quite a lot of choice because it's obvious that he's not legitimate in the society anymore and he I think this is now a a kind of a strategy just to to get a bit more time and to let people you know calm down after the protest and to show that this readiness for dialogue is there but at the same time he's not but I think what I wanted to get at was whether the Belarusian opposition wants anything from the West I think they have already pressed their wish or their readiness uh, Uh, you know, for some kind of, let us name it, mediation or maybe observation from the West when it comes to dialogue between the state and the position in Belarus. Well, the problem is if if one wants to have, you know, some mediation that all the sides uh, should be ready for this mediation and state for the time being is not ready for any mediation at all. And that's that's the problem. I mean, there were also some ideas to involve Russia also in this uh, whole thing and maybe not to invite the European Union but the OSCE because Russia is also a member of that so that they would not, you know, get this emotional reaction that everything is being coordinated by the European Union. Actually, this, this coordination council is ready for a dialogue like even directly with Lukashenko, they are ready for all kinds also of help, assistance coming from the European Union. And they have stressed that they also, that the interests of all the neighbors also from Russia, of course, also important for them. That's not the problem for the time being. So they are ready, the European Union are ready. The Russia might be also be interested in some dialogue, but we don't see any readiness from the state, from, from the president for the time being. 
Yeah, I've been in relationships like that. Kadri, um, how would the Russians understand this question of uh, mediation, either negotiations or, or especially a Western or European role in that? They want to keep the European Union out of it. That comes across quite clearly from Russian statements or foreign ministers' interviews. He always, when asked about it, he says that, well, Belarusian society must say what we want. They have the prerogative of deciding how to handle it. Basically, he sends the ball straight back to, to Belarus and to, to Minsk. So I don't think they would welcome any any Western mediation if it doesn't become absolutely necessary. But right now, it's not seen as such. And neither do they hurry to mediate themselves. I don't see signs of that either. They are just right now focusing on on keeping the situation in some kind of control for themselves. And neither do they hurry to mediate themselves. I uh, I don't see signs of that either. Maybe just quickly running a little bit out of time, but Andy, I was just wondering about this question of the security services. I think if you look at if you look at this type of protest movement, the real key to whether it can succeed when the when the regime is intransigent generally depends on the degree to which they are able to use or at least threaten to use the security services against the protesters. And how does that look in Belarus? I mean, Lukashenko has definitely already threatened to do it, and he's clearly carrying around a gun in order to demonstrate that. But is it, is it a credible threat? Yes, to some degree. We also had another symbolic or performative event yesterday. A guy called Dmitry Pavlichenko, who is widely thought to be responsible for the so-called disappearances of some of Lukashenko's opponents back in 1999, 2000, disappeared, presumed dead. Uh, he was back on the street, effing and blinding, <laughs> attacking the opposition, but a kind of threat of renewed disappearances on a much larger scale. I mean, Lukashenko's security forces are well paid, they're big. He doesn't have the problem that uh, the Georgians had in 2003 when the police weren't paid or that look, uh, Yanukovych had in Ukraine in 2014 where he'd maxed out his sort of repressive potential. There's still more to come in Belarus. The whole point, I think, of Russian sort of covert intervention is to give the impression that even more can be done for, and, and for longer with, with various types of Russian assistance. You can see one or two guys handing in their badges, one or two cracks at the base of the pyramid, some people not prepared to follow orders, but not at the top. Uh, at the top, um, people seem to be prepared to do what's necessary, defined by Lukashenko as necessary. Okay, that's scary. But these things can sort of flip pretty quickly. Given all of that, I thought maybe, it would, you know, since we get paid to predict, sort of, even though it's impossible, I thought maybe we should end by getting from each of you whether you just a sort of yes or no question, whether you think that Lukashenko will be able to maintain himself in power through the end of this calendar year. Why don't we start with you, Olga? And of course, you can feel free to punt on this. It's a totally unfair question, but I think people would be interested in your views. The question is quite difficult. I mean, the whole situation in Belarus and the whole dynamic that we see, it's just everything is changing almost every day. So it's really difficult to say anything right now. I mean, what the, the most, maybe the most probable scenario that I see for the moment is, is really this, this combination of, you know, attempts to push this idea of a referendum, a new constitution, and to show some kind of readiness. Okay, we, we can talk on that, but I do not expect that they will be talking with this uh, newly built coordination council. I think that 
they would have the officials that the president would have attempts in Belarus to initiate this referendum, but without any, you know, direct dialogue with this council, because it's also not, not only for political reasons, it's also psychologically for him very difficult, you know, to talk to these women. Uh, just about a month ago, he was saying that Belarusian constitution was not written for women. So he really does not see them as politicians and as rivals and it would be just you know he sees this as a damage for his image so I think there would be some attempt to calm down the society but at the same time the targeted repressions uh, that we see now I mean the the most active people at the state-owned enterprises also those who are yet left from the opposition but I mean almost everybody from the structured party opposition is already uh, arrested and everybody who would be more or less active would be arrested or would be persecuted or would be intimidated uh, to lose their job and so on. So I think this combination of targeted repressions and some attempts to push the idea of referendum is possible for Belarus. But it also depends on, you know... You don't have to outline the whole thing. Okay, okay it's just... Sort of ending up. Uh, I take that your answer is he probably will be in power, but uh, but who knows, which is totally fair. Andy, you think you can give a shorter uh, <laughs> yeah, answer to that yes or no question? I think Olga has demonstrated this. <laughs> sort of pundit's <laughs> ability to uh, take a yes or no question and be able to answer it in a long time. The regime has its new strategy in place, and it's thinking of two possible scenarios from here. One, that the opposition protests do lose momentum and diminish. If not, it has to crack down. I don't think they will lose momentum and diminish. So it's what happens in that next scenario that I think is key to whether he survives or not. But as um, I think Kadri said, Russia is providing some kind of resources but it's got a pretty open mind about who uses them if someone else looks like it can keep a lid on things then they'll be the next president okay that was almost a yes or no i think he's slightly more likely to stay but but it could go either way so i would say it's not exactly 50 50 but let's say 55 45 that he will stay something like that that's excellent. That was a model, Kadri. Thank you. I, I think, um, for the record, I, I think I agree with you. I think he is, he is more likely to be there than not. So the last thing that we have to do is our uh, bookshelf segment, uh, in which it doesn't have to be about Belarus. And in fact, for your own sakes, I kind of hope it's not. But let's hear what's on each of your bookshelves. Olga, can we start with you? Sure, we can start with me. And I really miss those times, you know, when I have time for the electoral campaign in Belarus. So it's indeed not about Belarus, it's about Berlin. Uh, it's named Berlin 1936, 16th August. It's in German, so it's 16 days in August by Oliver Helms. And uh, unfortunately, I do not know if they have it in English, so it's in German. And it shows that, you know, the life of German society in quite a lot of personal stories during these, those Olympic Games that were held under the leadership of Adolf Hitler back then and it's very interesting for me in terms of German history but also in terms of the history of Berlin where I have been living for about seven years already. Great. I'm glad to hear you're getting into other depressing topics. Andy? Well, um, blatant plug on Belarus. I've been reading my uh, PhD student what he's been saying, Tadeusz Gixan. He's from Minsk. He's been saying very interesting things. The non-fiction I'm reading at the moment is Lie Machines by Philip Howard of the Oxford Internet Institute. Just out. There are a lot of books on computational propaganda, however it's defined. Not many of them are very good, but this one is um, How to Save Democracy uh, from Troll Armies, Deceitful Robots and Others. Okay, that shows real breath. Kadri? My book recommendation 
I don't think it's of any use for our English language listeners because it's not available in English. But my the last book I've been reading is an essay collection by Hailiand Udam, who is a late Estonian Orientalist. He studied Persian language in Tajikistan and translated many things and has written a lot about Persian and Oriental philosophy and literature. And why it fascinates me, it shows some sort of Soviet cosmopolitanism, you know, that if you couldn't go and study Persian language in Tehran, then you could do so in Dushanbe. And, and actually, it was possible to become a specialist of a very obscure thing and, and be very good at it. And have your cosmopolitan circle of scientific cooperation. What's on my bookshelf is I've just finished a book that was given to me by uh, ECFR's um, recent crack intern, Emma Kolick, called Einstein's Dreams by Alan Lightman. And it's a book which describes the dreams that, uh, conceives of the dreams that Einstein had in his sort of miracle year of 1905 when he came up with the theory of relativity about time and it presents very a, a bunch of different perspectives on time which gives you some insight into how he might have conceived of the sort of incredible intellectual jump that is the theory of relativity but i think that's all for us we will have links to all of the bookshelf segments available for you on the website for now please go to your favorite podcast platform and uh, rank our podcast and you know, give us five stars. I would, I would ask you also to, you know, mention me rather than Mark Leonard. Uh, that would be helpful. And so for now, from ECFR, from uh, Andrew Wilson, from Kadri Leek and Olga Drindova, it's goodbye. The researcher of ECFR's podcast is Lucy Hoppenthal, but she, of course, was also on vacation, so I did it. And the editor is uh, Marlena Riedel. Mm-hmm.